Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. I'm Chris Daly, head of the Institutional and Defined Contribution Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and I'm joined by my colleague, Ann Lester, who's head of Retirement Solutions. And we also have the pleasure of having with us Ida Rademacher, who is the Vice President and Director of the Aspen Institute's Financial Security Program. Today's episode is tackling the retirement dilemma and is for institutional and professional investors. This episode was created at the request of our clients following a recent live webcast. Please enjoy the program. People are living longer, and that fact alone makes the need for adequate retirement savings more critical now than ever before. But nearly one-third of this country's working population doesn't even have access to a workplace retirement plan. Research now suggests that financial instability is plaguing most American middle-class households. And all this while the traditional social contract that placed most of the responsibility for retirement security on employers and the government is now evolving in ways that are shifting that responsibility to the very same inadequately prepared individuals. Now, that's a lot to digest, but that is exactly what the Aspen Institute in partnership with J.P. Morgan and AARP, set out to address. Thank you for joining us. For the next 45 minutes, Anne and Ida will help us explore the retirement challenges facing America today and find out if, collectively, we can proactively chart a course for real retirement security in this country, or, and this is a big question I have, are we, in fact, just on a date with destiny because we simply can't get retirement security on the top of the public policy agenda. With that, we're going to go ahead and get started. Ida, again, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Can you talk a little bit about the Aspen Leadership Forums on Retirement Savings and specifically what you set out to accomplish when you established the forum? Sure. Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. First off, I think it's helpful to understand the Aspen Institute a little bit. It was founded about 60 years ago as a forum primarily for industry leaders who were somewhat troubled, shocked coming out of World War II at all of the things that had just happened and said there needs to be a forum for industry leaders to think about the good society and their role in the good society. So Aspen has evolved over the years as a place where many sectors come together to think about the critical issues facing society and to really roll up their sleeves and solve them. The financial security program is dedicated, of course, to looking at those critical financial challenges in Americans' lives. And we bring those cross-sector leaders together as well. But I was inspired mainly for the forum by working with colleagues of yours at J.P. Morgan Asset Management in the U.K. for, I think, almost 25 years now. There's been a meeting that has convened, again, cross-sector, a very frank and candid and honest conversation about the future financial security needs of people in the U.K., and the kinds of trust that had to be built across sectors to solve those problems there. And I thought we needed a similar forum here in the U.S. And so it's been in partnership with J.P. Morgan and AARP that we really made that dream and vision come to fruition just last year. Great. And Anne, you had spent a lot of time in the U.K. in that effort and were very keen to make sure we were bringing that to the United States. And can you talk a little bit about just how you connected those dots between the two and what you thought we could get out of it here in the U.S.? Absolutely. So I was very struck when I went to this conference the first time at the absolute level of candor and, as Ida mentioned, trust that was exhibited in the room from people who on paper might not necessarily get along. And as we look at the challenges facing our retirement industry, and I will just 
say at the outset, we refer to it by sections of the tax code. We don't even talk about it as pension policy. Certainly in the 401k space, that's named after a section of the tax code. So it's not even called a pension or retirement or savings. But for me, I was struck by the level of candor and willingness to actually wrestle with tough issues, but also, very interestingly, leaving that conference and going to some of the conferences we are part of here in the States, observing how many of these conferences had people who are in the same industry who already agree with one another, telling each other things that we all already agreed with. And I don't think that's a recipe for change. So if we say, frankly, there are problems out there, how do we build bridges? How do we connect with people that we may not agree with on all facets to identify those areas of commonality and really think about how we can collectively move the needle forward? That's great. Uh, let's turn now to the Rappaport's report and talk a little bit about some of the findings there. Specifically, I know you said you were aiming to understand one central question, which is why is the U.S. retirement system benefiting certain Americans and not others? Yeah, I think that there's a number of challenges. And although the meeting was off the record, we produced a report that really did try to outline the key five challenges that people in the room agreed were the big dimensions that we had to grapple with. That first one is from fundamentally a coverage issue. I would say that, as you've described already, the defined contribution system we now have as our private savings system looks and operates differently than the defined benefit programs of the past. And they serve some people incredibly well through employers that have taken on the responsibility over the years of really providing retirement security. But as we outline the challenges, the changing nature of work, the coverage gap, it is, to your point, about you know, the numbers range, but a significant number of Americans have no retirement savings or very minimum retirement savings. And, and I know that for you, it gets lost in averages sometimes, and I know you'll be able to bring up that. So coverage was number one. And people agreed of all stripes that coverage was a big issue. Number two, though, was longevity. And I know that that's something that we will talk about here as well. People are living longer. That, again, is not the law of averages. Some populations, women in particular, middle-aged and women over 50 are actually living less, and populations of color have lower lifespans. So it's not the case all the way along, but overall, we'll have to grapple with longevity and financial security with those longer lifespans. The third thing that really has become clear from the data is growing levels of financial instability, not just in retirement, but through the life cycle. And so really understanding that to build a secure retirement, we actually have to deal with the ways that people's financial insecurity during their working lives manifests and address that as well. And then number four, just what I mentioned about the dissolving social contract, the challenges of employment and the growth of contingent work in today's society. And number five, to your point earlier, is in some ways the lack of political will to really get to these issues. It is certainly one of the most important things when you talk to households in America, but when you talk to anybody who's in a policy change environment, it is number four or five on the list. And so it's not that they don't care, but when limited things can get accomplished, we really have to raise the priority level of this. Somebody at the, at the conference talked about this as a problem that is more like a chronic disease than a crisis. And because we understand that in that way, we sometimes don't take the action we need to. So those are the pieces. We'll get into the solutions later, but the, the report overall outlined five big challenges and ways that we could address those. And there's a lot of convergence on that as well. Yeah, and uh, while we're on it, we're going to stay with you, Ida, a little bit on some of the profound changes that are happening in the system. But I thought maybe, Anne, if you could comment on the coverage gap and what the work you've done around averages and how that kind of coalesces in terms of looking at 
how we solve for problems today and whether that's really the right way to be looking at it. So fundamentally, I think the coverage gap is anchored in access. And if you happen to work for an employer who offers a plan and that employer is automatically enrolling its employees, chances are you're well on your way to a secure retirement. And when we talk about many people being served well, that's what we mean. But many small employers really struggle to offer plans. It's expensive. It's perceived to be risky. I think there's a lot of uncertainty around how to follow the rules, getting the outside expert help. You know, for a small company, the CEO may also be CFO and head of HR and head of benefits and also emptying the trash. So for that individual with five or 10 or 20 employees, right, setting up a retirement plan is is hard. So access is number one. But, But number two, even when people have access, right, we think of this notion of on average people have saved X or Y. But when you dig under the covers, we find what we would call in finance a barbell, right? Some people have saved very little and some people have saved a lot. And so trying to understand the shape of that distribution of behavior, not just between companies, but actually in the same company is also, we think, incredibly important. Yep. And again, we'll get back to a little bit more of that. But I just, again, change is happening. The system is evolving and it is becoming, it's moving toward more of a defined contribution-centric system, obviously. Where do you kind of think we are in terms of that progress? And then we can get into some of the things that might kind of emerge as ways to close that coverage gap. Yeah, we've grappled with this a lot at the forum. We grappled with this a lot in our everyday programming. And even just yesterday, we had a big event with the Bipartisan Policy Center and Pew looking at small business and closing the retirement gap. To Anne's point, cost and complexity are the two big reasons that we know small employers get a little overwhelmed with the issue of retirement. It also is something that's connected to the stage of the business's development. And, you know, in some ways, it's not that the employer doesn't want to do it, but again, because they're a cheap cook and bottle washer, it's number two or three or four down the list that they need to get to. We do think that finding ways to make it easier and less onerous and less costly for small businesses to offer retirement plans is the key to the vast majority of the workforce right now that doesn't have retirement coverage. Only about, and this is the GAO's most recent report, 14% of small businesses offer retirement plans at the moment. So the vast majority of the people who don't have retirement plan coverage that are employees are in that space. And then I think the other part that we actually, as an industry, and quite frankly, as a broader ecosystem of players in a retirement system, haven't grappled with is the issues of contingent work. And just how many jobs people have over life cycles for portability becomes an issue as well. So it's not just getting people into the system. It's realizing that that's going to be a repeated process over and over in somebody's career. And how do you help keep them whole in that process? I think the other thing about coverage that's going to be critical is understanding that the people, again, to the law of there are no averages, that the people who are not covered or not actively saving in a plan now are different in some ways than the people who are in those plans. So their attachment to the labor force can be different. The fact that they might have a combination of W-2 and 1099 work means that sometimes they're not even contributing consistently into the Social Security payroll, even as their W-2. Sometimes those people have a plan, sometimes they don't. But even if we get coverage up, the adequacy of those savings may not be enough to augment their social security in a lifetime. So a lot of progress to be made, but both between technology and some of the innovations in policy, both for the private sector and in terms of some of the state innovators, a lot of opportunity for progress in the next five years, I think. Yeah, and you mentioned that there's a lot of work being done at the state level. 
because I think they see the coverage gap issue as well. And obviously these folks that aren't covered live in the states and they clearly know they'll own the problem eventually and have started taking steps to see if they can correct the coverage gap themselves. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And I'd like to get your thoughts too, Anne, and talk a little bit more about open maps as well as another alternative. Yeah, you know, the flip side of defining the problems in the forum report is thinking about the path forward on solutions. Certainly one of these is rethinking the role of employers. And within that, you've got a couple of key leading thinking sectors right on this. So one is there is innovation at the state level to do what was originally proposed at the federal level, which is how do you take the behavioral insights that have really made the difference since the Pension Protection Act in raising up enrollment? How do you take the tenets of automatic enrollment and automatic escalation and put them in play? A couple of different ways to do that and reducing the kind of level of responsibility that's there for the small employer. Mm -hmm. At the state level, they have taken some of the tenants that were originally proposed by the Heritage Foundation and the Brookings Foundation as automatic enrollment and put that in place at the state level. So states like Oregon and Illinois and Maryland and California States hold overall that represent probably 13 million uncovered workers right now are looking at requiring employers to allow their payroll systems for automatic deduction for retirement savings. The individuals can opt out of that process in these state plans. The state plans themselves are administered by record keepers in the private industry and asset managers in the private sector. So these are not funds that are truly managed by the state. But the goal there is that, I think the incentive there is that oftentimes we know from behavioral insights that it takes a trigger, it takes a decision point to make a decision around something. So again, even if you wanted to do retirement as an employer, it might be something you mean to get to, but it's next week or next week because it's never the top priority. So it would force a decision of, am I going to be part of the state plan and use the option that's there, or am I going to take this moment to take advantage of the tax breaks and the ability to match my workers and actually enroll in a 401k at this point. So the first of these off the grid, uh, off the mark is Oregon. It's in pilot phases right now. And yesterday was the deadline for employers with 100 employees or more to be a part of the work. So there's active piloting and engagement going on with that right now. It is a complement, I think, to something that Ann can talk about more, which is a real innovation that industry has been supportive of, and it's bipartisan support and across industry for open multiple employer plans that really let small employers of different backgrounds pool together to reduce the cost and the complexity of this work for them. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think when we look at the innovations that are happening through the open multiple employer plan or MEPS, uh, as well as the state plans, I think you can see the genuine interest in removing barriers to entry, reducing complexity, and reducing perceived fiduciary risk for the employer. You know, I will just say, and as the forum unfolded, there was a great deal of very frank discussion on a number of topics, and this actually state plans was one of them. And just to give a bit of the color of the conversation, you know, there was a very robust articulation of, I think, fears that some in private industry have about this being a replacement for the private savings program. And if, in fact, employers use these programs and max out, frankly, on what is currently technically possible, you are really not helping individuals save enough for retirement. And I think the counter-argument to that from many of the people who've been advocating for this is actually this is a way to get started to get these plans to scale, to get people used to saving, and then we can imagine those, those people transitioning. And what was particularly interesting was the perspective of some of the employers in the room and plan sponsors who said, I think there was actually no consensus at all from them. Some of them said, 
you know, we are committed to offering a plan and this is part of our value proposition to our employee and we would never contemplate turning this over to somebody else. And there were a few who said, wow, if this really works, maybe that's the answer because why are we in this game? Which to me is, again, the conversation that we need to be having among all these stakeholders. And to the extent to which this provides room for innovation, room for experimentation, and room for people to come up with a better way of solving this problem, I think, you know, we will learn an enormous amount. Vis-a-vis open multiple employer plans or MEPs, I do think there have been numerous proposals in front of the Congress to pass this legislation. And this does seem to be one of those somewhat unique areas in public policy right now where there really is consensus that this would be a great thing. And it would remove what I think are many, many barriers to entry for a number of employers. And so, again, if you have this burgeoning set of choices and opportunities for plan sponsors to offer these benefits, plus some tax incentives, then I think that will help enormously. You know, I think the forum illustrates, and I think Aspen's kind of bread and butter work is, we want this issue to be seen as a higher priority for action. And so for us, it's a Mm win-win when you have an even broader sector of leaders, decision makers, both in policy and in industry, agreeing on the problem and saying, we're going to solve it. And it asks them, we're, we're not, not, we're completely agnostic. We're pretty evidence-based about what, what works. But I do think that we are just encouraging of people saying, this is the issue that I am going to make a difference on. And I think that what we saw at the forum was an evolving set of appreciation across some of the stakeholders that either haven't engaged with each other before or have engaged but haven't had a deep conversation about the pros and cons and limitations of different pieces. And I think that's what we're hopeful of going forward. Yeah, I think, you know, the coverage gap is just a central issue. I mean, we can't help people increase their savings rates if they're not contributing to begin with. And I think, you know, hopefully with some of the discussions around some of these state-sponsored plans and particularly these open maps, and just to define that, currently you can have a multiple employer plan. You just have to, all the underlying employers have to be affiliated. And this would allow unaffiliated employers to all participate in one program, which you can see the economies of scale and benefits that would provide. All right, let's come at this a little bit differently in just in terms of looking at the retirement challenge in this country. And I want to ask you this question, Anne, around, you know, we live in a capitalist society, right? And what I mean by that is that you see this all the time, 70% of this country's GDP is based on consumer spending. And so, how do you square the need to increase the retirement savings being experienced at the individual level when, in fact, this country needs people to spend their money? Well, that's one of the core challenges. I think a different way to frame it is in income smoothing and consumption smoothing. When we look at how people actually spend their money, it certainly peaks in their mid-50s. And one of the challenges when people are young and when their savings have the longest time to compound and generate true, make it a truly meaningful difference for them, you know, sort of 40, 50 years down the road, is probably when it's the hardest for people to save right out of college and where the gearing effect of another dollar in their pocket is going to go right back out again, repaying a student loan or helping to buy their first car or, you know, buying groceries. So when we think about that problem, I guess, I'm not sure we should necessarily view them as a substitute for one another. It's really a question of if we're going to be living longer and we're going to need to be managing through a working career that is going to be more episodic. And I think even for those of us like myself who spent 25 years at J.P. Morgan, right, I can see those episodes evolving around me. This notion of smoothing, I think, is a powerful one. And so how do you think about savings 
for long-term goals, for short-term goals, and making sure that you are able to, frankly, keep consuming even when you're going through those ebbs and flows of a paycheck. And so it's not, to me, necessarily just about retirement, although that was the focus of our conversation, but also really about how do you think about messaging and managing for the broader society this notion that we all have to save a little more, and that will actually let us spend more money, right? right? If you take away some of the fear, some of the anxiety, and some of the day-to-day volatility people are experiencing, I frankly do think that's going to lead to a more productive workforce, but also the ability for people to more consistently budget, plan, and spend. And that is ultimately going to help growth. Anything to add there, Well, I mean, I think maybe just another way to say what Anna's saying, we're in complete agreement about this, is that I don't see spending and saving as substitutes. I see that saving is building up the base for a consumption at a different point in time, right. whether that's consumption saving or saving for the purchase of a durable good or saving enough to be able to leverage credit. Right now, we have many households in this country well into six-figure incomes spending more than 100% of their income. Their debt-to-income ratios are more than 100%. In fact, U.S. right now is 135% debt-to-income ratio. Which would mean they're living paycheck to paycheck. And then some. And then some. So I do have to think that there's actually the IMF and other studies have come out to show that in many economies, leverage and access to credit does fuel growth and accelerate growth in the economy. But there are tipping points for that. And I think that we do have to consider that if some of the consumption that we are counting on is actually becoming a drag on growth. That's something we have to consider. I also think that savings has been a fundamental way that we have had liquidity in markets. I mean, think about mutual funds. You think about the $25 trillion in savings and retirement savings in this country. That is not just people not consuming. That is money that is going into fueling companies and fueling growth and fueling productivity. So I think both, if you look at it at the household level, savings is part of security and choice and mobility for a household. And if you think of it at the macro level, saving is a critical part of consumption and growth. I want to throw in another comment, which is that as people live longer and we fundamentally don't know what our own individual life expectancy will be, the shift in the system that we've seen away from defined benefit towards defined contribution, which, by the way, is the shift that's happening globally. It's not Mm -hmm. just here in the U.S. I do think requires people to save more than would otherwise be necessary if we were still what we would call pooling longevity risk, right, or annuitizing or being in a DD system. So I do think there's a conversation to be had about is this really the most efficient way, certainly for everyone to try to fund their entire retirement. And I do think we've had this move away from pooling longevity risk and the notion that that's coupled with a guarantee. And one of the things I hope we tackle in future sessions, although I think it's probably not at the top of the list either, is actually the economic consequences of this much higher savings rate. And it will smooth out over generations because if you end up not living to be 110, then maybe your child will benefit from your savings. But that will take, you know, 50 or 60 years to start building up as a pool of capital for others to rely on. Right. Yeah. And so I know the report in the forum did not specifically address Social Security as an issue unto itself. Obviously, that plays a huge role as we, you know, in terms of building blocks for what makes up the retirement system in this country. And there's a lot of, I think, myths around its health and solvency and and so forth. So, and specifically, and Ida, if you can, just comment on the state of Social Security and where you think that's going. So I think it's no secret that Social Security is not fully funded. And in 27 or 28 or 31 or 32 years, depending on who you talk to, we will go from a surplus into a deficit. However, under the most sort of pessimistic of forecasts, 
we will continue to be able to pay for the next 100 years, 75% of the benefits currently promised to working Americans. So while that's not happy and that's not good news and it does mean that we need to make some fixes, it also does not imply to me that we have a catastrophic failure of the system. And there are a number of very, very smart people who've put forward a number of, I think, differing and intelligent ways to tweak or fix the system that wouldn't be material. But, but the thing I want to emphasize is really two things. One, I have heard people tell me in their 20s and 30s, well, I know I won't get anything because, and that is such a fallacy. I think it creates really perverse incentives for people to either oversave right now because they think they're going to bear this whole burden themselves or say it's so complicated and hard they're not even going to try. But the second one is I don't think anybody who is today currently retired or even in their 50s and 60s needs to really be worried about a material shift in their current ability to collect that benefit that's been promised to them. I assume, and again, these are assumptions, right, that to the extent to which there are any changes made down the road, they will be built into an evolution just like the last time we had Social Security reform so that people will have time to plan for them, right? So I just think this lack of combination of skepticism around it actually being there plus this sort of high level of anxiety actually makes it harder to fix. Yeah, I'll jump in and I'll flip it on its head a little bit in terms of where I start from. Not that we're disagreeing on the actual analysis of the situation, but I think that going back to the coverage gap, part of the reason there has been a lack of will to solve a problem of retirement savings for lower income earners, because there is another myth out there that Social Security is enough, sufficient to replace their wages in old age. It certainly is closer in terms of full replacement value for people in the lower end of income brackets. But remember that Medicare costs are going to be increasing, healthcare costs are going to be increasing, people are going to be living longer. Those costs come straight out of a Social Security check. So if anything, the needs for a private sector savings for people in the middle and lower half are actually important, even with a solvent social security system, to make the private sector savings system work for them. And I think the other thing that's been a real innovation in this space, this is coming out of Mercatus, which is a libertarian, a really interesting person who was deputy secretary for social security for a while, Jason Fitchner, talks about, let's go ahead and innovate in a couple of other ways. We know that if you, every year you delay Social Security, it's almost like the best annuity you're going to be able to buy, right? You get a 7% to 9% increase every year that you delay it. So if you wait till you're 70 versus 62, you get almost 70% more per month in that paycheck. What if we think about a gap financing strategy, you know? How do you actually make people able to fund with their private sector savings a few of those years of that retirement gap in some way. So I think it was pretty clear at the forum that we just couldn't boil the ocean. It's a whole different ecosystem of people that need to be in the room with expertise on Social Security to fix that problem than it is for a private sector savings system. But there was very much acknowledgement in the room that both of those are essential to solving the retirement crisis. Having said that, there are ways to understand how these programs and systems may interact more dynamically. And if we think about that as one of the places to innovate, you know, I think that we could have a really constructive conversation going forward. Yeah, and I think that kind of leads to the next part of the conversation around lifetime income, right? And I think Social Security obviously provides that baseline, call it, quote, guaranteed income for life. And likely that'll stay, you know, and it'll get pushed out over time, but it's going to be there. What's not there now is the private sector pensions. And that was a form of lifetime income as well. Is there a gap there that we need to fill? And is solving for longevity by self-insuring, to your point, 
a much more costlier proposition. So for the, the math would tell you that self-funding requires double the pool of assets when you retire than if you were to buy an annuity. We've run the numbers. We've been publishing papers for years about sort of savings rates and target date funds. And if you self-fund and you want to be sure that you do not run out of money before you're 110, which is really what you need to be planning for, that's a lot of life beyond the actuarial assumed age of 85 or 87 that most people anchor on, right? So that extra 30 years is a really long time. That being said, most people really dislike the idea of all of their money being tied up in an annuity stream. I think there's a fear of loss of control and what if I change my mind? What if I need it? You know, when I talked my parents into buying an annuity, which took a long time, my mother said, well, what if we die? You know, then you won't have the money. And my admittedly callous answer was, well, you'll be dead. Why do you care? Um, she didn't really respond to that very well. But um, I think afterwards she said, well, yeah, actually, you're right. Why are we worrying about this? But the notion of surrendering control, of not being able to change your mind, I think makes people very anxious. And we now know a lot more about why they're anxious because we've been able to dig into some of the data that we've been able to observe through our J.P. Morgan Chase colleagues in our retail bank. And this data has been published by the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. We're publishing on it as well. And it shows that not just income volatility increases as people age because they are using investments to generate income, so it's a little lumpier, but also expenses get more volatile. So if your expenses are getting more volatile and you really are on a fixed income and you can't access your capital because you can't unwind your annuity purchase, that makes people scared. So I do think that the way we should be thinking about solving this problem is it well, it's got to be guaranteed income for life. It's got to be this. It's got to be that. I think it's one of those classic yes and. You know, yes and there needs to be a stable income stream that covers your best estimate of your sort of living standards that you're comfortable cutting down to. Yes, and there needs to be some buffer for liquidity. And if you have a, an incident in your life or you suddenly have an acute medical issue or your child is getting married and you want to be able to help pay for the wedding that year. And yes, and this has to be more easily understood by people. And I do think we struggle to articulate the benefits of risk sharing in general. So I think that's a big challenge. There is. I mean, the discussion around how to solve for the decumulation aspect of the system is a very big challenge and still one that we have to work hard to find solutions for. And I think plan sponsors are not, by and large, comfortable putting them in as mandates or guarantees or even, to some extent, offering them because I think there's a real fear that's tangible about making themselves vulnerable from a fiduciary perspective. Yeah, exactly. So let's switch that a little bit and talk about, I mentioned in the open that there is this big shift of responsibility away from employers and the government to your average American worker. And we talk about things that plan sponsors can do today during accumulation, like things like automatic enrollment and automatic escalation. Is that enough? Will that do the trick? I do think that as people are saving for retirement, people are much more alike than different. If you assume that the money stays in the plan, broadly speaking, and again, we publish vast amount of research on how people aren't doing this as consistently as we think they should be, but you know, broadly speaking, people are in, they stay in. Broadly speaking, the right investment answer is a diversified relatively risk and growth oriented portfolio. And again, we can all argue about exactly what that could look like. But I think there's a great deal of consensus around you want your assets to grow and really you're focusing on this time horizon to the age of 65. Whether you earn $50,000, whether you earn $150,000, whether you earn $250,000, right? I think people are needing to do similar things to get ready for retirement. 
I do think, though, that once people retire, there's suddenly a big divergence in what is the right answer. And that is partly personal preference. That is partly people who retire maybe a little bit earlier and have a second career as entrepreneurs who may have entered the gig economy as a senior citizen and they have some part-time work consulting, right? So there are going to be a lot of different scenarios that emerge and people have radically different healthcare needs and health, frankly. So I do think that it's not nearly as likely to be a one-size-fits-many answer post-retirement as it is in accumulation, where I do think, broadly speaking, all the evidence shows that that is a very, very sensible way to help people get on track. Which is good news in that there are things plan sponsors can do now, at least to shore up the accumulation side of the equation while we work to figure out the back end. Yeah, I think I'll bring in the perspective that we made sure at the forum, as we do with most of our work, to make sure that you bring in consumer advocates and, you know, and again, coming back to this coverage gap, you know, for whom is the system working? And I think in this case, we're seeing that the system's actually working for accumulation for a lot of folks, but in the decumulation phase, it's not. Right. And some of what actually adds fuel to the fire there is that when you get it right with auto-enrollment and auto-escalation, you've actually been able to take a lot of ongoing day-to-day engagement with your own money off the table as something to think about. So then all of a sudden, you have to reactivate a population to think about their money in a decumulation phase, having trained them to ignore it. So I think that there's, there's opportunities there to figure out what is the level of touch and engagement, even as you put the features in place that ensure consistent savings that gives you that security, if only you have the right kind of decumulation. I think, you know, as we looked at this risk shift conversation at the forum, it was both in the accumulation and decumulation phases from the perspective of the consumer, from the perspective of how many decisions, not just in terms of their financial lives, but in every other aspect of decision-making, tend to be now resting with individuals. We've kind of defaulted to this idea of self-insuring all sorts of risks that used to be covered by insurance. You know, things like unemployment insurance now, in some states, cover one in nine workers who lose a job, but where it used to be at least half of workers. So the different kinds of both social insurance and private insurance that are there for workers to manage shocks that are more than $500 have diminished. And so I think that one of the other risks for accumulation for people who are in those vulnerable middle and lower middle income phases, this is where you see a lot of the leakage come from retirement accounts, right? So you end up not even, you know, and I would say quite frankly, a lot of the folks in a consumer advocate space kind of say, wouldn't that be a high quality problem, a decumulation problem? I don't have the money in the account. If I have the account, there might not be enough there. I think part of what the forum was about was actually owning for everybody that these were all problems that are part of it. And part of the how do you solve this for the employer was very much thinking about a couple of these other ideas that we said. How do you reduce the level of fiduciary responsibility, either by potentially the open map idea or by the state you know, coming in with some other way of helping to reduce the risk and the onerousness of the process? I think what was clear, though, is that we actually have put the most risk at this point on the least stable institution, which is the family. And we are not supporting that work enough. And so I think all of the kind of innovations we talked about at the forum and that we're talking about today, it's kind of like all hands on deck. All of these pieces have to be part of the solution. Yeah. Yeah. Great. One more question as it relates to some of the stuff we dug into at the forum, which has to do with financial wellness and whether or not employers should be expanding the scope of how they think about retirement in general or specifically, whether or not they need to or, or feel like they should be doing more. Right. It was fascinating to see that come up 
at the forum. And for me, in some ways, it's no surprise. I got to help design the forum. And, uh, and I'm slightly <laughs> obsessed with thinking about people's entire financial life and realizing that solving the long-term financial security problems has everything to do with understanding the short-term financial security problems, which are growing for many households in the U.S. I was privileged to be part of the research team several years ago that put together a kind of a consumer-driven definition of financial well-being. And across age cohorts and regions of the country and demographics of the country, there ended up being kind of four main streams to what is financial well-being as defined by a consumer. They were that somebody felt able to manage their day-to-day financial life. They felt in control in the day-to-day. They felt like they could be resilient in the face of an economic shock. Mm -hmm. They felt like they were on track to meet their long-term goals. However, they define them. Many of them, it is retirement, but some of them, of course, it's home ownership, it's college savings, it's these other pieces of their long-term goals. And the fourth piece, which felt in some ways less tangible, but most important to people, was that they had some level of financial freedom to take advantage of the kinds of things that made life meaningful. So they could send their kid to summer camp, or they could take everybody out to dinner on a whim, or they could take a family vacation, or, you know, so the big and the small, just those things that you know in our own lives makes you feel good at the end of the day or makes somebody else feel good at the end of the day. So you think about that definition of what a person feels makes their life well, and then you look at their balance sheets these days, and you realize that if you are in the business of attracting and retaining the best talent for your company, you might be dealing with somebody who's coming in and all they're thinking about is their level of student loan debt, or they are thinking about the fact that their car is unreliable and they can't get to work. And so really having to own that, if you're going to be creating a package of benefits that's really going to resonate with the talent that you want to attract and retain, you want to think about a broader suite of tools and products and services to meet that need. And and I think in that sense, financial wellness goes well beyond what's the YouTube video you can give somebody in terms of financial information. It's really understanding that many of the big life decisions that people we know and love make to make life meaning, they're putting them off. You know, they're putting off marriage, they're putting off home ownership because these other kinds of consumer debt or income volatility constraints are crowding out major decisions like saving for retirement. Mm-hmm. So I think for us, that was a robust piece of the conversation. It's also led to innovations like, can you build out a retirement system that has a sidecar liquidity account as well as, you know, a retirement savings account thinking about all of those things much more holistically, I think is the future. And I think what we need to do is push to make sure that that is a robust set of products and services. I think the flip side of that is understanding at any given point in time that the resources of an HR group are already highly constrained and that they're already spoken for. And so the pay for this additional suite of products and services, I think is someplace we've got to get really smart about fast. The other thing I'd add is as we work And again, I'd bring in the global context here a little bit as other countries, whether it's Australia or the UK or many other countries have now started mandating more sort of personal savings for retirement. One of the questions that we're now starting to hear, and this is one I frankly am very interested in doing more research into, is to what extent does the automatic enrollment and auto escalation actually, on the one hand, increase people's retirement stability, but on the other hand, possibly decrease their current financial stability, right? Because if somebody is able to save 10% and all of that's going into their retirement account because we've escalated them, then are they actually then going to the payday lender or going to a high interest rate credit card debt because they don't want to touch their retirement savings? So again, I don't think we can answer that question. No, but there is some research. Powerful question. You know, yesterday at the panel that I was moderating on the small business solution, the person who's in charge of the California state plan They've done a lot of market research, consumer research, and, you know, they have styled that with a basic Roth IRA 
because what they know about the people who need to be saving is that they are more likely to save if they think they have access to that money. It needs to be somewhat more liquid. Even though it's for long-term financial security, they're unlikely to even start if they feel like they can't get their hands on that money because they're not quite sure what other, they don't have a lot of other buckets to look into and it's aspirational, but it also needs to be very pragmatic for them. So I think that's to your point, just one of the things we should look into more. Great. One last question. It's been a while since we had the forum, which means it's going to be coming up again at some point relatively soon. So thoughts on the next one and things you're thinking about for both of you? I'll start with actually a story I told earlier, which is we were doing a house renovation or trying to do a house renovation years and years and years ago. And we were trying to figure out how to get plumbing on a slab floor in a basement around a door. And this would involve, you know, we had three people in and it was running pumps and pipes. And this is for a toilet, right? So pipes over the door, which seemed like a bad idea. (laughs) It involved jackhammering out the foundation and laying a pipe underneath and then having to jackhammer out into the sewer connection, which also seemed unattractive. And the fourth person we had come to look at this problem said, well, why don't you just move the door? There's a really easy solution to this, which involves no pipe. And in fact, was extremely easy and fast to fix. And One of the things I'm hoping from this conversation is that we collectively figure out what is the door moving that we can be doing that actually is a win-win that lets everybody who's trying to fix this problem get behind it. And to me, that's the highest aspiration. I don't know that that's going to be what we do this year or in the next conference, but I do think that is what I hope we get out of this in the next five to ten. Yeah, I would say we were really enthusiastic about the level of response from the first conference, and I think just the ability to have some incredibly hard conversations where there was not agreement in the room, but there was a great deal of respect. So part of the secret sauce for the first one, I think, was the partnership and the deep, we're already planning, we've been planning conversations for months now on the next one. So I'd say quickly, it's not just about getting the right institutions in the room, it's about getting the right people in the room. And so it's almost to a person, how do you curate a set of folks who are committed to solving the problem, have enough decision-making power in their institutions to affect change, and are willing to extend themselves to actually meet other people who have other concerns about how the system is working and for whom. So I think in this next one, we're going to try to build on that level of opportunity to build trust. We're going to continue to try to focus as a starting point on where is it likely that there's already 80% agreement on either the problems and the solutions, and there's a lot of places in the retirement system that that's but really bringing in even more of an ability to think about how does innovation and technology and learning from other countries help inform the work here in the U.S.? And what do we think about some of the kinds of opportunities in the future for public-private partnerships to solve problems and for the kinds of vertical and horizontal industry collaboration that we really are needing to do to solve this problem. We have to think about this problem as a top national priority to solve, in which case sometimes what we're requiring is people to take off their institutional hat and say, this is important, we're going to solve it, and we're going to figure out what level of working together is going to be worth it for us. And I think that this next one, I'm going to be really feeling great about it. If more people are talking about move the door as the metaphor and actually getting a sense that within five to 10 years, the ecosystem of stakeholders can solve this problem together. Great. Well, that's about all the time we have today. I want to thank Ida and Anne very much for your time and taking us through all that. Hopefully, everyone in the audience has gotten something from the discussion. I think what I've gotten from the discussion is the fact that 
we do have a chance in this country to chart our own course for retirement security for all American workers, but it's certainly not going to be easy. It's got a lot of challenges in terms of stakeholders and a population that is not inherently set up to save for retirement. So very exciting that we can continue down this path. And I think if we fight hard enough and keep working collectively, I think we can start solving some of these challenges we see and talked about today. Thanks, Anne and Ida, for joining us on Insights. If you found our Insights today useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website, recorded on November 29th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, 
ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.